Welcome back to Bulls with the Bard. My name is Cakes, I am your host. Today we are talking with Peter McHale. Peter has been horrifying folio purists and DC audiences alike for the last eight years. His love for Shakespeare stems largely from reading Hamlet in high school and thinking, this would make a lot more sense performed than read. He was correct. Favorite Shakespeare plays of his include Twelfth Night, Much Ado, and Othello, with honorable mentions being Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead and I Hate Hamlet. On the weekends, Peter can be found performing in Drunk Shakespeare at the Sage Theatre with his friends, and soon after drinking the nearest bar dry with said friends. He also likes long walks on the beach, pina coladas, and getting caught in the rain. Peter is here with us today to talk about DC's new chapter of Drunk Shakespeare and to teach us how the Shakespeare industry can do better by mixed race individuals. I am ecstatic to share our conversation with you, but before we got chatting, I got a little high and Peter drank some whiskey. <laughs> back talking about the plague with Peter. Oh my gosh, how do I say your last name, Peter? <laughs> Mikhail. Mikhail, that's what I thought. It's, but you know. We can get into why it's pronounced that way later. Um, cool. <laughs> um, Peter. <laughs> Good start. Um, you know, didn't didn't just smoke or anything. No, no, Ricky. no, no. Um, uh, <laughs> Peter. How did you spend your plague times? Um, it was a solid mix of just full survival mode, trying to find, like, income, because the world shut... I mean, like, we were all there. The world yeah. shut down. Um, and then, like, adapting to new modes of theater. So I did a few Zoom shows in the plague time, like, when everything was shut down, shut down. And it was such a wide breadth of different experiences like some really positive like some things worked and i learned some things about new ways that theater can maybe be presented to audiences that might not necessarily see some theater it was a great way of experiencing like new works or more obscure classic plays that might not get butts and seats but might get you know views on a stream on the other flip side of that zoom is not built for theater or performance or Anything like, at all. <laughs> barely built for meetings, and somehow it beat out Skype for the, the zeitgeist. <laughs> uh, but so yeah, like I, I did like three specific ones, and like one was recorded, and I think that worked the best. Okay. Because we could like it was filming at that point. You can go yeah. back and if something got flubbed or we had a technical issue, you could go back and fix it. Uh two were live. One was a cast of three, one was a cast of like 17. Oh wow. Yeah, uh, the cast of three worked out pretty well, because that's fewer cats to wrangle. The cast of 17 was ambitious. And I think that's what's true of all of them. Um, and true, yeah. They, none of them had a stage manager. Like, none of the three shows I worked on had, like, a stage manager, because I think they figured, there's no stage, why well, need a stage manager? Mm -hmm. And every single one of them could have benefited from having just someone to run point on, like, the 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 not sexy parts, like the, the scheduling and the management and the technical side. Whereas we just had the directors doing all that and it, for mixed results. Um, so yeah, a mix of that and then just odd jobs in the pandemic. 
until I ended up going back to my restaurant job. And then things started falling up. Like, my first show back, like, live mm-hmm. in front of people was, like, a Shakespeare in the Park gig this, like, earlier this year. So, like, it's still been a minute between Zoom shows and, like, live acting. Okay, um, cool. Was that with Grassroots? Grassroots Shakespeare, yeah. Okay. Grassroots cool. Shakespeare, D.C., had to specify, because there was the one in Utah. In Utah? Such a weird thing. <laughs> Well, it's because the founder, and I'm going to shout out my friend here, Kylie Azure Green, um, they they were in the grassroots in Utah, and so they brought it to D.C. because they just loved the experience so much, and the whole, I mean, the whole point is, like, original practice, like, it's, it's ensemble-led, it was such a great experience, especially just as my first, like, live show back in the pandemic, definitely the best possible scenario. Um, That's so cool, so cool, and valuable for D.C., I don't think there's really much original practice Shakespeare going no, on in this area? No. Shakespeare is such, in D.C., is such a wide variety. Yes. Because you've got very, like, scholarly works that happen at, like, the Folger. You've got very concept-heavy shows that happen at, like, STC. You've got, like, little bits and pieces here from, like, smaller theaters that still are kind of trying to fit in one of those niches. Mm-hmm. And then, like, if you can count the Ren Fair, too, technically, like... The Maryland Ren Fair is one, of, I think, one of the biggest draws for Shakespearean actors in yeah. DC. Yeah, definitely. Um, I learned yesterday it's the biggest in the country. I did not put that together. Wow, huh? I Maybe, didn't know that either. I think we might want to fact check that, but <laughs> <laughs> call us on it in the comments. You know. <laughs> yeah. So, Shakespeare, and so grassroots is like I don't know much, like just Shakespeare in the Park that happens in DC, which is wild because we no. have. So many friggin' parks. No, like somehow uh, I did an apprenticeship with the Commonwealth Shakespeare Company up in Boston like years ago. And back when I did it, the whole time I was like, there is no major Shakespeare in the park in D.C. I think it's it's the weather. There's that. We do live in a swamp. That's that's part of it. Yeah. There's PG County Shakes. Which does that's true. That's that's Shakespeare in the park, but that's like in Maryland at the National Mm Parks, which still very cool. Um, and then I know Next Stop has started dipping their toe in that water, too. I did see that. It looked I was supposed to go, but the show I was supposed to go to got canceled. Right, um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it looked like their setup was really nice for that. Yeah. Like, they found a good location. So hopefully they keep up with that. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, Grassroots definitely is a new thing in D.C. It's still definitely... It's early days. Um, mm-hmm. like, I think they only started last year, so it's still kind of a you know getting the word out and finding, kind of building those relationships. But it's it's really hitting the ground running, which is oh, great. Awesome, yeah. awesome. So you are now also dipping your toe into DC's new chapter of Drunk Shakespeare. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes. So also thanks to Grassroots, I found my new niche as the Drunk Shakespeare actor. Um, <laughs> false staff is coming, I'm sure. Uh, but so yeah, Drunk Shakespeare DC, we opened in, after a few false starts because of construction, we opened in, I want to say, late July? Okay. It's all kind of, it feels like it's been going on forever for me. Like, I, I, it, this is one of the so it's one of the greatest things I've worked on personally. Like I, I've had, it's such a fun concept. It's such um, a great cast I work with. It's only nine of us, and we've gotten really close over the last few months. And it's, it's one of, it's, it splits this line of like it is so faithful to the original spirit of Shakespeare's plays, and also so new and. I'm not going to quite say groundbreaking because I don't think we're quite there, but novel at least. Yes. Yes. Um, but like it. it 
Shakespeare's stuff was like originally a lot more raucous. There's so many dick jokes in Shakespeare. Oh my god! People, like people don't realize no. they think it's so high class. It's, but. it's so like it, it, I mean that's because of you know academic Shakespeare and like we, we get debates on if Shakespeare actually wrote the plays or what <sighs> this like seventeen different punctuations mean. And then we miss the dick jokes, and there are so many good dick jokes. <laughs> Such a shame. <laughs> so yeah, drunk Shakespeare. Um, it's great. Uh, like it, it's an evolve. It's a constantly evolving thing. It's like fifty percent improv, fifty percent Shakespeare, um, which for a bunch like for nine Shakespeare actors was a massive jump for us. Yeah, I bet. Um, like the other cities, like Chicago, New York, it's the cast are made up of improv actors doing Shakespeare for the first time, and we're Shakespeare actors doing improv for the wow. first time. Wow. <laughs> and, like, a lot of people have seen both have said there's a difference. Like, it's just a different kind of show when you're coming at it from a different angle. I'm not saying one's better than the other, but just, like, when we're, we're like, we're such, pure, like, adherence to the text. Even when we're fucking around with it, like, we want to elevate that yeah um it's not just about like adding our own barbs in we do get a we do get a fair amount of those in too though but that is so interesting because i feel like in terms of theater skills like both shakespeare and improv are difficult yes and so for both versions of that that must have been such a leap oh absolutely <laughs> no improv is like i would think my weakest skill as an actor before i went into this oh, wow. i just did not feel as confident on that as other things. It just hadn't really come up in the shows I'd done, or not intentionally at least. Interesting. Um, I would never guess that about you. That's, I keep getting that. <laughs> uh, so this, this might just be a self-conscious thing more than <laughs> an actual assessment of my abilities. Maybe it was just like an experience level thing. Now I, think, I think also part of it is like what I was, what I was doing could have been considered improv, but I didn't consider it improv because I had this idea of improv as like, you know, six white guys <laughs> making a joke about a gynecologist. Um, fair, fair. <laughs> like the kind of college improv group is kind of burned in my memory. Yes. Um, so yeah, but uh, Drunk Shakespeare is great. It's a wild time every show. Um, and it's, I mean, it's got a huge amount of audience participation too, which also original practice. Yeah. Of all the shows I've worked on, like the audience's energy is so like it's always important in every show we do but <clears throat> for this one it's like it's it can make or break it like if they if we have a dead audience we feel we feel it immediately yeah i bet I and bet. that's when we get them drunk um <laughs> and then it fixes the problem exactly <laughs> i'm a big fan like shakespeare in front of drunk people is the best thing like, I feel like it like, helps them release like the, the thought in their head that they have to like focus so hard exactly. to understand. I think the mistake a lot of us make, or a lot of people make going into Shakespeare for the first time is they try to look at it through this very detailed lens. Whereas you really should start with broad strokes because these are not new stories. They were not new when Shakespeare told them. They're still relevant today. We keep accidentally retelling them. There's no, there's no original thoughts. It's all remixes, um, which is not a condemnation. It's just true. No, it's true. It's how art works. <laughs> but like when you start, like I think when you're drunk, you 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 can pan out a little more, and you can start seeing like you're not worried about the prose. You see the characters. Yes. And you go from there, and that's, I mean, kind of the the spirit of what we're doing with drunk Shakespeare too, because it's not. It is a text purist's nightmare. I will, like if there is a like a folio. I have not had a folio scholar come to see it yet, but I'm sure when they do, they will have thoughts <laughs> and maybe a conniption. Uh, oh my gosh, 2017, Michaela would shit her pants. <laughs> 
glad we've evolved. <laughs> we all must. <laughs> I mean, like, I've had friends who could definitely, like, quote Shakespeare chapter and verse at me who have come see it, and they've loved it because... I mean, everybody loves a good dick joke. Yes. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I so look forward to getting to experience. <laughs> awesome. Um, so moving on to less fun, but still important topics. Um, I feel like in these plague times, we had a chance to kind of address some some issues in mm -hmm. theater and Shakespeare. And we talked about it a little bit. And then it didn't really happen. Yeah. With you, I'm curious as to how you feel the Shakespeare community could do better by mixed race individuals. Um, right. Or how we're falling short with those people. Any thoughts you might have on that? I mean, like you said, the, the pandemic really laid bare all of the issues that theater had for a lot of things. For accessibility, for inclusivity for diversity and like we had a brief moment of in the pandemic of just doing art for art's sake and not really worrying about what that looked like and i feel like as soon as things opened up again it snapped immediately back to money yeah and yeah the the best way to get money out of audiences and what that looks like as for how it affected mixed race people like myself um because yeah i'm very ethnically ambiguous i can Pretty much, if you stare long enough at me and think of an ethnicity, you'll start seeing traits. <laughs> Specifically, I'm Middle Eastern, but um, like Shakespeare has never been great for the not white folk. Um, we have like historically how it's been produced, like the original subject matter, what's happened to since. What we get with like the kind of theaters that put on Shakespeare that are very specific about catering to the folks with money is that they're more likely to put on what's been done for the past century or whatever, which is a very white bread, sanitized version of the work. And so we kind of get away from, like it's still very much based around European beauty standards, it's very much based on the white gaze. Um, like you do get interesting productions of, you know, Merchant or Othello mm -hmm. now and again. But even then, it's still, like there's always this elephant in the room about like what is being done behind the scenes and like the, I think DC especially and this isn't just a Shakespeare problem it's a theater problem I mean for one thing every it, it's a very clicky city when it comes to theater Ooh, yeah yeah oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> it's like big city vibe but small city amount of people like you will know every single person involved but if you don't know them in the right sequence you might not get through doors yes yes um and so, like, it's very much, like, there's that as a contender for a lot of people. So you've got, yeah, the clicks, the, the clicks that people form, and, like, it's who you know, not necessarily what you can do, which is not the most conducive when some people have very rigid ideas of what casting should look like for Shakespeare, what the production team should look like for Shakespeare. I mean, if we're talking Shakespeare specifically, like, the Shakespeare Theatre Company, uh, is this slander? Who will find out? You're more likely to get cast if you move to New York. Truly, yeah, like it, truly, like I feel like, and this is definitely not specific to mixed race people, but we run into it again and again where bigger theaters in DC, like especially the ones who are doing like more classical works, there's one of two options. One, they'll just decide they don't need to involve people of color because they're doing classic works, and if it wasn't necessarily a script, then why do we need to worry about it? 
or two, they will go full high concept. It is about that ethnicity altogether, no stops, and then we'll cast from California. Um, uh huh. Uh huh. There's a middle ground. I think we can reach very easily. Like it doesn't. It, obviously, we need works about different groups other than white people. But also, at the same time, we can just cast not white people, and it doesn't have to be the make or break. It doesn't have to be, like, this massive undertaking, which is, I think, what one of the big roadblocks is that it, when we, like, folks like me are going into the audition room, that sometimes it feels like we are, it has to be this politicized thing. Like, I've definitely called in for roles because I look, because I'm Middle Eastern, mm-hmm. or I can look enough, like, another ethnicity that it makes sense the weirdest one was when they called me into being an indonesian boy which i don't quite see myself frankly i had a, a professor turn to me and was like peter you're brown <sighs> she meant well and i think she was in a desperate pinch so i'm not gonna hold it against her um but uh, that was a conversation that happened yeah not great that, not that great. was that was god i think it was 19 or 20 when that happened so like very like, still kind of new to theater in general, and that was a conversation. But, like, I'm, I'm okay with, like, being called in for roles because I'm specifically ethnically ambiguous, but I do have a rule for myself, and it does get interesting when it comes to Shakespeare, is, like, um, my rule is, like, even though I'm ethnically ambiguous, I don't play races in works that are about that race. So I'm, like, I'm Christian Egyptian. My family has been Coptic for, you know, for a while, longer than most of Europe. I like to rub that in white people's faces sometimes. <laughs> but so, I, but I'm comfortable playing like a Muslim character, but I wouldn't want to play a Muslim character in like Disgraced or gotcha. like a show where it's about the Muslim identity. Um, so where, where that kind of butts into is when you do have roles of, co- like roles of color in Shakespeare, it is usually about that identity. Yeah. Like I have played Aaron the Moor. Should I have played Aaron the Moor? questionable it was also in a college theater group so i was the diversity quotient so it's the same oh god the same should, should they have been doing the play in the first place putting you in that position i, oof, <laughs> like, I don't yeah. spend an entire other interview on that particular yeah. production of titus andronicus but anyways well, it's, the, the worst thing is it's it's still an improvement because like a year before i got there the same company did othello and then realized they didn't have any black actors who had auditioned, so they made it about an age gap instead. No, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> Again, before I got there, but I learned about that. Even like, as like fresh into college, eighteen year old, hadn't done Shakespeare acting before. It still just struck me. I was like, hey, that's probably not. That's probably not kosher. That's not good. No, no. Uh, I don't. I don't like that. Um, so I mean, I'm a big proponent. Like the. The flip side of this, so it's, yeah, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm a big proponent of, like, you should just cast people based on their ability. You shouldn't necessarily worry about always having it to be about the ethnicity. Again, there are definitely a time and a place. We definitely need to have those stories told, and it has to be done sensitively, and it doesn't have to be white people to do it. <clears throat> we have witnessed what happens when white people try to tell not white stories. <laughs> Unfortunately, far yep. too much. Mm-hmm. Like, it should be done sensitively, it should be done with care, and it should be done with the right people in the room. On the flip side of that, though, so I'm a big proponent of just cast people who go to the drop. But at the same time, if you cast... Casting tells a story whether you like it or not. That's something um, 
like it comes up a lot especially among like actors of color like not just mixed race but you know black asian Latino. yeah yeah and that's something i think that a lot of white casting directors and white audiences don't necessarily click with all the time like i saw a production god this is ages ago too it's technically Shakespeare adjacent because I think it was Folger. No, it was Ford. Never mind. That doesn't matter. Oh, well. <laughs> it was um, Death of a Salesman. And they cast a local actor. I think Craig Thompson. <laughs> I see him in so many things. I can never remember his name and I hate it. He's great. So he's, he's a black man. I Okay. Yeah. I, I know who you're talking yeah, about. <laughs> he's excellent. Everything I've seen him in, he's friggin' transcendent. And then, like, as his sons, they cast these two tall Nordic Viking looking white men. <laughs> And I was just kind of taken out of this. Like, you couldn't cast two guys who looked like his son? Like, that, were there the no other black actors around? In D.C.? In D.C.? <laughs> really? Walk, walk me through that one more time. And, like, I mentioned it offhand to the two white people I saw it with, and they were like, oh, I didn't see the issue with that. I was like, well, that says something, too. So, it's it, there is a bit of a balance to find, but I think, first of all, having people of color in the production side of things, flat, baseline, and absolutely, like, you're not just hiring people because they're people of color, but, like, there's so many people of color who are so good at their jobs. Yes. And, like, as they're excellent actors, directors, producers, technicians that don't get in the room because they don't, aren't afforded the same opportunities. They didn't have the same kind of, like, exposure, especially when we're getting into Shakespeare. Like, I ran into, so, the same student theater group that did the weird shit that I'm going to not name, <laughs> but, you know, if anyone knows me, they'll put the math together. <laughs> but that was a thing, like, I tried to fix, like, in college of just, like... Shakespeare has got this kind of reputation of being a very white endeavor. By its very nature, like, there's a lot of white characters, it's from England, it's just a whole thing. But it can also be, like, at its base, like, it can be for everybody. Oh my god, It, it, has, yes. it should, and, like, there's a reason that we still have, like, Marlowe is obviously still around, mm -hmm. but Marlowe is not ubiquitous with an entire genre of, like, acting and theater. Like, there's a reason Shakespeare is still around, and I think, in general, a lot more can be done to open that up to people who might not necessarily see themselves in Shakespeare, outside of just, you know, tragic roles like Othello or Aaron the Moor or the bevy of characters in The Merchant of Venice that's, uh, yeah. Um. <laughs> yes, like... Put an all BIPOC Twelfth Night up on stage yes. and have it be riotously funny and it, don't need to say something. It, with it doesn't it. always have to be like yeah, like and like there's obviously like recasting Shakespeare like and reframing and having these like high concept heavy, heavy-handed like I am like for what like when STC did Othello with Patrick Stewart. And they reset it in South Africa to make it make sense. You don't need to. Also, maybe Patrick Stewart should be playing Othello. That's the one role I won't get him. I'll give him everything else. No, yeah, no, not that, just one. not that one. It's like, there's a thing. Like, why can't you just accept that, like, I, every other role is technically for you? It's just, it, it is it's fascinating. Like, specifically about Othello, just, I feel like every white actor of a certain age wants to play it because they aren't allowed to. Mm -hmm. Olivier did it once and it screwed everybody else over. Was it Olivier? It was Olivier. I think it was Olivier. It's definitely been more than just him oh. that like did the full. Oof. At least Patrick Stewart had the decency not to do blackface. <laughs> the bar yes. is so low. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I I hear what you're saying, and I think 
I've seen a tiny bit of it since I guess the pandemic has ended. The Folger just did Midsummer, and it was a largely black cast, not all black. Right. Um, And there were definitely like sprinkles of blackness in the show, but it wasn't about that. And also that Folger production stands out for me. Like I auditioned for that. A lot of people I know auditioned for that because they were specifically looking for local actors, Mm -hmm. which shouldn't be revolutionary. But kind of is for a theater like that. On the equity level in this city, definitely. Like that's, it's a recurring theme that it's easier to like ship up to New York for those open calls. So, and I think the Folger having a production like that and going out of their way to cast local is a huge step forward for that. Like it was a like gorgeous concept. Every like all the aesthetics, everything was yeah. Even something as simple as that, like there, you could do that with a lot more stuff. It doesn't even have to be a huge deal of just like, because they did in the casinos make a big deal about local line, which I get why, but like it, you could just do that more. Yeah. I, I have to imagine it's cheaper to cast local because I don't have to worry about paying for housing for one thing. I, I can't understand the logic there. And again, this kind of goes beyond just like people of color, but like there are, there are local actors who aren't people of color who are also running into this. Yes. Of just the model we have for casting in the big house. So your options are either the non-equity, like, finding spaces wherever you can and whatever, like, podunk Black Ox theater you can find or a park in Arlington. Uh, yep. It's either that or move to New York and maybe come back to D.C. at some point. It's just a wild situation to be in. It's silly and... I, I almost feel like we've reached a point where, like, I think it used to be an audience draw. Like, mm-hmm. oh, we have these shiny actors from New right. York. But I've actually started to see audiences complaining about people doing that. So I mean, maybe you, rethinking a little? Getting back to Drum Shakespeare for a sec, like, everyone gets so excited when they find out we're local actors. Because they, a lot of people are assuming that this is, like, a touring thing that's, like, in New York, that's in D.C. just for a while. Mm-hmm. And so when they find out that not only is this sticking around for a while, but it's only local actors, people get pumped. We've run into people at bars who saw our shows, and they get so excited, like, to see this, God, I think it's... Z double Z list celebrity, but <laughs> you know what? But not for them. Like. Exactly. No, it's such a it's so it's such a great experience. Like casting local, I think should happen more. Yeah, I'm not. I don't. I've never understood why it was. The, it, that's a controversial take to have. And again, you also run into the like the, the flip side of like, going back. Like you do get the clicks of like those who do cast local only cast local from a pool. Yes, yes. And getting your foot in the door for that can be pretty hit or miss, but. I, like we've seen in the pandemic, like there are ways, a lot of things probably need to be rebuilt from the ground up. How we approach casting, especially in Shakespeare, and how we approach concepts in Shakespeare should definitely be re-examined. Like we don't need the 15th production that's just a pastiche of Bas Lerman's Romeo and Juliet. We've seen it. Baby Leonardo DiCaprio's hot. That's it. <laughs> that is true. Um, except I think that film's over 25 years old, so he won't associate it with it. Um... True dad. <laughs> True dad. He should. Uh, yeah. He's on the wall. Right behind you. Oh, oh yep. Right there. <laughs> nice. There you go. Uh, <laughs> look at it. That's a great work, but we don't need the 15th dozen reiteration of that. No, I think, I, I always say, like, if we're going to justify producing a dead dude like 400 years dead dudes work when there are living playwrights we could be paying to produce their work then we have to be doing something 
interesting and innovative and different with it. I mean, like, it, Shakespeare's the easiest way to do that because it's such a blank canvas. There's, there is a play for everything. There's a play for every story you want to tell. And I know I made comments about, like, concept-heavy shows before, but there, if, there's a way to do them correctly. Yes, yes. And there is, when they are done correctly, there is a major value to them. Exactly. Yes. And then, but then, like, the only concept-heavy show I can think of that got major stage attention is which was a weird choice. I think it was... SDC did, like, an all-male Allswell. It was Taming of the Shrew. It was... That's so much worse. It was... It was... That's so much this worse. Is, I tell people all the time, hands down, the worst production of Shakespeare I have ever seen. One woman in the creative team, a costumer. Other than that, all men cast and creative. So cringe. Original practice. <laughs> so oh my cringe. god. It's not it was like did you see that? No. It was like three and a half hours long. Already a mistake. <laughs> That's the other thing. Again, not a this is not an identity thing. You can cut Shakespeare. You should cut no, Shakespeare. No, but they didn't instead of cutting they added Duncan Sheets songs and they, they played through intermission. <laughs> I don't know what Duncan Sheets is, but that He wrote all the music from uh, Spring Awakening. Oh, it, oh, it was so. It was every new layer about this makes me. More <laughs> it was so bad. Just they had, about everything. They had a pre-show experience that people came to like an hour and a half before the show. They played through intermission, so there were like unscripted plot points happening on stage while people went to the bathroom. Very not. What in the. Uh, I could get going about that production. <laughs> so, like, there was so much time and money thrown at that, and so much energy put into that and obviously it was like they made this huge deal it was like the, it was the gem of their season yes where is that energy for not that for just not white men for i like for for women for people of color for black people for like it, queer people like where where is that energy no exactly like where's the all bipoc like trans exactly. cast like, that's for, getting celebrated just give me gay poc ass cup 12th night and i would be so happy and so would so many people. And I, I think when you think about audiences and the future of Shakespeare and, like, getting new people to sink their teeth into this stuff, yeah. like, on TikTok, my biggest audience is I do this, like, unhinged, goofy Shakespeare video yeah. stuff. I've seen them. They're excellent. They're, it's young, like, high school queer kids. They all love it. Like, I love the subsect of Shakespeare TikTok. Like you're on there, my friend Emma's big on there too. And it's just it's the the support like and the kids that are seeing this is their first interaction with Shakespeare, which is great. And it's not some stuffy English teacher yes. telling them about the symbolism of Hamlet stabbing someone through a curtain. Um which is another dick joke. Um <laughs> uh, but yeah, like and again, kind of like in the pandemic, there was this opportunity to do more with that. And it just kind of went by the wayside immediately as soon as it wasn't convenient. Like it wasn't the convenient option. And like accessibility has always been a conversation in the theater that does not get talked about nearly as much as it should be, especially no. in the houses that are doing Shakespeare. There's this such a big push for like tradition and traditional practices that we kind of forget those folks that aren't accommodated by that. Like you, like different, like there's, disabled folk who can't yes. necessarily say there's people who don't have like the financial means to see that and like getting back like dc is a very not white city 
that caters to a very white yes. audience for some like, reason. I personally would prefer to do theater not for hill turns and lobbyists and consultants. Yes. Like, nothing wrong. I will take their money any day. But it's not the audience I want to do art for. Or it's not the audience I want to do Shakespeare for. It's not the audience Shakespeare was doing Shakespeare for. No, no. I mean, in that production of Midsummer at the Folger, there were they encouraged people to, like, hoot and holler yes. at the beginning of the show. And then Jonathan and I were the only people who would. And you could feel the people sitting next to us. Their shoulders, like, go up to their ears every yes. time we did it. But you could feel the people on stage be like, Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for being the one person to listen and just like engage and have fun. Have fun with it. Loosen exactly. up. <laughs> it's like yeah. So drunk Shakespeare, big on audience participation. Grassroots, big on audience participation. Mm -hmm. That's why I've gravitated to these so much because I mean Shakespeare was it was the pop culture of the time. Shit, like it was for the working man. It was supposed to be like this like event out, and mm -hmm. it was supposed to like the fact that Shakespeare is now the, for the most part relegated to these dark auditoriums with silent faces is one of the biggest tragedies I can think of. Mm -hmm. Obviously not things are trivial, but still. <laughs> no, like the the fact that I I was advertising this podcast and got told by an academic that Shakespeare is about learning. And I was like, nah, Tell man. that to Shakespeare. Yeah, I was like, Shakespeare... And he was so offended that we were talking about, like, not even altering the text, just, like, doing Shakespeare with an influence of anything. Um, I've got, I've got uh, some news from him about what Shakespeare was doing. No, uh, I was like, we have we have quartos that prove that this man wrote and rewrote his plays. He'd be mortified to know we were doing them like this. Absolutely. <laughs> like, also, there's like an entire subsect of Shakespeare work that was just straight up propaganda for whichever monarch was going oh, on. So yes. like, <laughs> it's not holy scripture. It's very, very hedonistic for one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh god i just it like i i want the return and like this is definitely tied up in like my identity is like mixed race because mm -hmm. class struggle race struggle they're intertwined <clears throat> i won't get on the communist soapbox just yet but maybe later but like when you start moving towards like opening up to audiences who might not necessarily be you know platinum level diamond whatever the hell donors who have auditoriums named after them they start opening up to just people who work nine to five jobs or and like make, can't afford four hundred dollar tickets. Like then you start the snowball effect of you expose like kids who might not necessarily see Shakespeare mm -hmm. as something they can approach. Even if you don't end up doing Shakespeare for the rest of your life, it's such a good learning curve of like how prose works and how acting works and how audience interactions work. It's it's I think the still the best like hothouse of learning how to do that. And again, it's predominantly rich white kids who are given this Shakespeare access, this like and or access to theater because um, theater. Weirdly, not a very lucrative job. Whoa. Wild. Like a hot take. <laughs> Newsflash. <laughs> so, like, the people who can afford to do theater, even in, like, college, are, like, the ones who started pretty well off. They don't have to worry about having real degrees. Yep. Like, I was very privileged that I, like, had the opportunity to study theater, even at a school like American. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not going to rag American, but I'm just saying it's not... I didn't go there for theater. I went there for uh, Justice Law and Criminology at first. Oh, wow. And then I learned better. Um, <laughs> not, a great not, not a great study field. And, like, I picked up a poli-sci minor to justify staying in D.C. But um, still, for the most part, like, the people I was working with in theater were, like, they came from money. Yep. And they were very, 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 very white. Yeah. And I said that to their faces, so if they find this on the internet, they will not be surprised <laughs> saying this. 
Um, like I again, I'm mixed race. Like I'm half Egyptian, I'm half white, and culturally, I'm I say culturally, I'm Texan because I do not speak a lick, of, a lick of Arabic. I could not begin to tell you anything about Middle Eastern culture outside of like the broad strokes I'm aware of. But like I'm still in most the theatrical rooms I'm in, it's like starting in college, moving up now. I am still kind of a diversity quotient. Yeah, which yeah. is wild. <laughs> that should not be the case. Yeah, yeah. And then you, you, you do get, this is a brief anecdote, and I'm not going to name names or any production stuff, and I'm going to be very broad because this only happened in 2018, so there's still people around who will remember it. But like, I was part of a production, and there was a musician involved, and he was a black man, and part of the, it was a production of, I'm not going to name it, we're going <laughs> to, suffice it to say, it was about like the black male experience mm -hmm. in the modern day. And so it was a black man who was a musician, and the cast, with a, which was predominantly white people, except for me and three other people, they really, really just immediately fetishized this poor man. Mm. Like, not, I don't, I doubt it was intentional. It was just like, oh my God, he's so hot, he's so talented. Yep, I yep. can't talk to him, I can't look at him. So I was the only person who talked to him like a human being. Um, he's great, excellent saxophonist, um, saxophonist, whichever. But it was just this stark contrast of, you are in this play, about this man's experience like that is supposed to be talking about what is going on with this like what kind of ordeal and you are still missening the point this much yeah and like this is not an isolated incident this happens no, a lot. it seems to happen very frequently I mean I feel like it's every other week we hear about some scandal from some DC theater of like some artistic oh. director who made some comment that was either sexual harassment or racist or homophobic mm -hmm. or transphobic but then it Disappears. Either like it's swept under the rug, or like there was the one outstanding case where that like one theater company just folded entirely. That was wild. Yeah. Um, but we have seen the cis white straight male interpretation of Shakespeare for four hundred years. Yeah. I think it's okay if we relax the grip a little bit. I I and, agree. And start just like branching out. Like, what does an all woman production of Taming of the Shrew look like? What does an all-black production of Othello look like? What does a Jewish-run production of Merchant of Venice look like? What what do these stories sound like? There's a lot that's problematic about Shakespeare, and it's just baseline. Like, obviously, it was written 400 years ago. It was not... <laughs> obviously, not politically correct. I'm not all of it. But, like, there's so much to work with still. Like, there's a reason that we still do it 400 years later, and I think it's more important... Not just to not sweep that under the rug or just brush past that, but to address it head on. And like, what does that mean for the text? Why is it like this? Why is that still pertaining? And I think that can really only faithfully be done with the identities it deals with. Not only in the room, but like a majority in the room. Amen. Not just like brought on as the, the show pony yes. to like trot out as like, look how diverse we are. That's not helping anybody except yourselves, which... Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I guess with that in mind, do you have any ideas of like shows or characters you would like to see specifically with like very, your lived experience? Very selfishly. Um, I was in a production of Othello in college and I played Iago. Okay. In addition to my very white friend, Emma. We both played Iago. Oh. There are pictures. Um, <laughs> That's so interesting. It was a concept 
Um, I won't get into the logic. There's, there's, there's some very high-minded artistic ideas about this, and Colleen Jennings, bless her, is one of the greatest people I ever worked with. This one was one of the ones that is still a bit of a ass stretcher for me. <laughs> so what we ran into though is like, is Iago a white woman? Is Iago a mixed race man? Is it somewhere in between? However, I would like to play Iago as a mixed race individual because that is there's a conversation about internalized racism to uh-huh. be had with that. Like, if you're not quite white and you're not quite a person of color, and where does that leave you? And I think Iago is a really good way to see the worst parts of that kind of laid bare. Like, I've had difficulties with, like, figuring out what my identity is for ages. I know I'm not the only one. Um, like, this is a, just a common theme for anyone who's kind of caught between worlds like this. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, like, I'm certainly too white to be considered fully Egyptian. I'm certainly too Egyptian to be considered fully white. Having that dilemma, I think Iago is one of the best places to see, again, the worst of it. Because it, there's obviously still, like, this hatred and this racism and this manipulation, but then you start looking at, it takes on this color. Like I said earlier, when you cast people of color on stage, it tells a story, whether you like it or not. So when you have my <laughs> ambiguous ass plotting against black Othello, that tells a different story than a white man doing it. Um, like there's this internalized hatred. There's this almost like envy and jealousy. That's so much more interesting than just another conniving white man. Yeah. Other roles I feel could benefit and like do a lot to tell about this lived experience of being between worlds. I do. I'm a big proponent of Viola and Sebastian in Twelfth Night. I feel would benefit a lot from those roles are very specifically about ambiguity and like Uh operating in a world that's not quite your own and adapting to it. And I feel like just, again, that's kind of the mixed race experiences. You are always kind of operating in a world that's not quite your own. Um, And so that's like the more positive spin on it than Iago is like, it can sometimes also be a rom-com with some swashbuckling, not just plotting against your friends. Um, A bit of calm, a bit of calm. (laughs) (laughs) So I think those two would be like, the three, I guess, those three, I guess, off the top of my head are like the most like, of the roles I would like to like, analyze what the mixed race experience in theater and in the world is like those three would be my top just because there's so much to work with and shakespeare it's a such a broad branch that you can do honestly with any of the roles you could play with that um with some exceptions obviously like i'm not sure quite how you would do it with like hamlet senior but i'm sure someone, <laughs> someone wiser than me could find a way oh definitely definitely <laughs> no i love that i I got to study Twelfth Night this year, like do a deep dive, and uh, I had a trans classmate, and so we looked a lot at like that perspective of Viola, and yeah, I think there was a similar conversation of kind of like a pull between two different lived experiences and what is most valid and what fits right for me, and... It's so interesting how that can bleed into multiple different kinds of experiences. I think Twelfth Night is, I mean, it's a bit of a cop-out answer for what I've done, because it is the identity play. Yes. Like, there, if you have any identity that's marginalized, you will find yourself in Twelfth Night, which I think is beautiful. Mm. I saw a production, uh, I think Next Stop did it, but my very good friend Ezra Tozian. Ah, um, uh, yes. Love Ezra. Yes. They played Viola, and they played Viola as non-binary. Mm-hmm. And so instead of, you know, this character flipping between, you know, male and female, they were just always non-binary, and, like, how that changed the script and how that affected things. And it was... Oh God, so cool. It was so I can, I didn't get to see that, but I can already so piece together some of it. It was such a good cast in general. Like, it, that was the first... This is off-topic of only a little bit. It was the first 12th night I ever saw where I sympathize with Malvolio 
Oh. Like, Malvolio wasn't just played as just the stock cartoon villain, but as an actual tragic character. And it was, I was gut-wrenching. It was beautiful. And then once you once you sympathize with Malvolio, There's you can't no stop. Back. Nope. No <laughs> then you're back. like, then you're mad whenever anybody plays him like an angry dude. Like, <laughs> it's, there's, oh God, there's so much nuance. And also they played it, um, like the Yellow Stockings, they played it as cross-dressing. So not Ooh. just dressing ridiculously, but dressing out of gender. And how that would be, like, then you're suddenly mocking a man who feels suddenly comfortable in a dress. And that's like, that's not as funny as the stockings. That's just sad. No, but also, like, somehow makes sense with, like, if he's seeing Olivia falling for a man who's kind of womanish. Exactly. Like, oh, gosh. It, it's, that's, Twelfth Night is the identity play. Yeah. Like, if you ever want, like, I think it's the best inlet into the rest of Shakespeare for people who are these, like, non, like, the not cishet white dude, straight man Christian <laughs> identities. I think you can find, like, everyone will find something in Twelfth Night. It's one, it's one of my, my favorites. Um, and it's got, it has less baggage than, like, your Hamlets. Yes. And your Macbeths. And your Romeo and Juliets, even. Certainly. So, yeah, that's, I think, one of the best ways to do that. Sweet. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up. Yeah. Peter, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you doing this. I appreciate um, you doing this. And I appreciate you as a human. You're wonderful. Oh, thanks. <laughs> if you enjoyed today's episode, you can follow Peter and Bulls with the Bard at the handles either on your screen or in the description. Please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps so much. And tune in next week as we chat with Gabby Wolf about her new play La Llorona and discuss how the Shakespeare industry can do better by mixed race individuals and the Latine community. Until then, bye all. A thousand thousand sighs to save all Lay me where sad true lover Never find my grave to weep there